Good morning. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. Your Bible isn't all already falling in that direction. Excuse my uh, burnt appearance. They had us uh, working out in the parking lot all day on Friday at work. I guess you could call it work. But it was a impromptu, kind of a semi-company function picnic. Turn to 2 Samuel 23. And we're going to be beginning in verse 8. Today we're going to look at something that some might consider just a, an addendum to David's life. Here it's not even a full chapter in 2 Samuel 23. It seems like it's just uh, this part of the chapter, just some miscellaneous events of people who are associated with David. But I think there's more here for us. We're told in 1 Corinthians 10 that these stories in the Old Testament are written for our examples. And I think as we see the men in this chapter, and we see their love and their loyalty, the faith they had in David, more importantly, in the Lord, I think we're going to see examples that we can follow today. 2 Samuel Chapter 23, beginning at verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bathshebeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because he had killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahoite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him was Shema, the son of Aji, the Hererite. The Philistines had gathered together in, into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Then three of the thirty chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zuriah, was chief of, of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of the three? Therefore he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benai was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff wrest the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things, Benai, these things Benai the son of Jehoiada did and won a name among three mighty men. He was more honored than the thirty, but did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. Then there was Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shammah, the Herodite. Eleka the Herodite, Helez the Paltite, Ira the son of Ikesh, the, the Tekoit, Abiezer, 
the Anatholite, Lebanite, the Hushathite, Zalman, the Ahohite, Maharai, the Netophathite, Heleb, the son of Bana, the Netophathite, Ittai, the son of Ribai, from Gibeah, of the children of Benjamin, Beniah, a Pirathonite, Hidai, from the brooks of Gaish, Abi Alban, the Arbathite, Asmith, the, Harma, the Harmonite, Eliab, the Shalbanite, of the sons of Jashin, Jonathan, Shema, the Herite, Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Herite, Elifethet, the son of Ahasbi, the son of Machathite, son of the Machathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezri, the Carmelite, Paarai, the Arbite, Igal, the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai, Barothite, armor bearer of Joab, the son of Zuriah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gerb, the Ithrite, and last and certainly not least, Uriah, the Hittite. 37 in all. Now, I'm sure I brutalized those names pretty bad. Kind of glad they're not here to hear me brutalize their names. But I wanted to read all their names because to me, this is like a roll call. This is a, this is a hall of fame, a hall of faith in the Old Testament. You see this list of the things they, 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 that they did. These were incredible guys. And you would think these guys came from a long list of warriors with the best of intentions, the purest of motives, right? Well, as, as was uh, hinted at in some messages in the past few weeks, that's not exactly how they started off. Turn to 1 uh, Samuel 22, or I'll just, I'll just read it for you. 1 Samuel 22, not 2 Samuel, but 1 Samuel 22, beginning of verse 1. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. This is when he was leaving Gath. Uh, and the king there was rejecting his assistance. So he left there and went to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. How's that for filling your ranks? Not exactly what you'd call the cream of the crop. Discontented, in debt. Yeah, I don't think many people would pass a background check for, for a lot of companies. But these were the men that these mighty men came from. Of the 400, these 37 really stuck out. This ragtag bunch of brothers and cousins and people in debt, people not satisfied with the way things are. Does that sound familiar? Can you think of anyone like that? I remember a, a story of a, a, a tribal people, and these missionaries were going to this unreached people group, very remote, and when they could start to communicate, they were communicating to this tribal people. They said, look, we want to come. We want to live amongst you. And here is two Caucasian, I believe it's North Americans, a Canadian and American, going to this tribal group in Papua New Guinea. And they said, we want to live amongst you. And we want to stay with you and live with you and learn your language and learn your culture and then tell you what God's talk is. <laughs> and the tribal people are going, huh? Don't you see all the bugs that are in our hair? Don't you see this harsh belt that we put around our waist that cuts into our skin? Don't you see where we live? You want to stay with us? <laughs> sure. Do you want to come tell us about this God's talk? That's fine. Because we are not happy the way we are. Soon after hearing that story, I had the opportunity to come home to North America to share with a family member. And I was telling him how he could understand the Bible from the very beginning and have a clear message presented to him so he could understand it for the first time. Clearly having a good job, nice house, a wife, kids. What did he say? No thanks. We're happy the way we are. 
It's what it takes, isn't it? It takes discontentment. It takes some stress. God seems to have to use that to wake us up. I know when I look around here, and I think about some of the stories in this room, many in this room were on the verge of divorce. Some here are struggling with substance abuse. If you're here this morning and you're seeing all these nice people who are real friendly and, and dress nice and, and you don't think we've got problems, you're crazy. This place is filled with sinners, filled with problems. We all knew we couldn't make life work. That was the bottom line. You want to talk about discontented. We were looking at life, and life wasn't working. We weren't working in it either. But then that, that wasn't the, all of it. As we started to seek out God, because we knew God could make this work somehow, because it was way beyond us, then we found out, uh-oh, David's men aren't the only people in debt. I, I've got a bigger problem here than my mortgage. I've got a bigger problem than being upside down in my house. I've got a debt problem with God. A debt so large, it could only be paid by an eternity separated from God. An eternity in hell. That's a large debt. That's huge. Sometimes you think, wow, that, that number's so big, we'll never pay that off in our lifetimes. But whatever the dollar value is, you can count it. But eternity, that's a huge debt. We were, we were to be separated from the God who we tried very hard to keep out of the reality of our lives. I don't want him in my life. I might go to church, might be religious, but come in here, the reality of my life? No, Lord, you stay over here where I like to keep you. You see? So what does God say? Okay, well, if that's what you want, then you'll have eternity like that because that's the payment for sin, the payment for rejecting me. Makes sense, right? He had the right to do that. Well, thankfully, just like David in this social cast-offs, the Lord didn't leave it like that. Jesus didn't reject us either. You could see David pretty much took on all comers. It's kind of hard to describe someone that was a little bit worse there in social, social life. And that's what Jesus does today, huh? Any who comes to me, I will what? In no eyes cast out. All may come. And what does Jesus do? He says, I've come, Jesus came, that we might have life. And that more abundantly. Jesus, because of who he is and what he has done, has the power to completely turn around a rebellious, discontented, vain life. And give you a life with meaning, full and overflowing. Has anyone here experienced that with Jesus? Any amen? amen? Amen. All right. So let me ask you this. If Jesus did that for many in this crowd, does Jesus deserve some mighty men and women for him? David had a cause. He was God's anointed. But we even see in this chapter, he realized his worthiness only went so high. What do you think? Does Jesus deserve mighty men and women for him today? Amen? Amen. All right. Well, good. Let's talk about them. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. We have Adino, the Esnite. He killed 800 men at one time. And Eleazar... He was fighting the Philistines with David. We gathered to battle. The men of Israel retreated. In verse 10, he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. I'm going to try to slow down, but as soon as I started getting to these guys, I, I get so excited about these guys. I mean, these guys are an inspiration to me. And I think about what they've, de what they've done here. Adino, 800 people. It's all right. Let's go. That's, that's, what his heart, that's where his heart was at. 
And we'll talk more about that type of faith as we go along here. Think of Eleazar. What happened to Eleazar? He shows up for the battle, right? And I'm sorry, you know, I, I got to have a sword and shield when I start thinking about these things. I can't do this without a sword and shield, you know? I remember the first day when I got this. I remember the first day we uh, bought this for the kids. There was a lot of thrusting and shielding and thrusting, and, and eventually the kids got to play with it too, you know? But can you picture, can you picture Eliezer right now? He shows up for the battle. All right, let's go. And then what happens? What happened to the Israelites? Hey, where'd everybody go? He's got probably hundreds of men coming at him. And what is it? Him against hundreds. What would you do? What would be the natural response to do? You run. <laughs> this kind of this kind of cattle theory, right? The whole flock goes that way, you go that way. They must have something. Right? Not Eleazar. He could see no one else around him. Then what could he do? Then he could look up and say, okay, good. We got him outnumbered. Let's go. Right? There's an English proverb that says, a hero has the same amount of bravery as a common man. A hero has the same amount of bravery as a common man. He just has it for about five minutes longer. I would say this. God's mighty man, God's mighty woman has the same amount of faith as anyone else. They just have it for about five minutes longer. He stood his ground. He wasn't going anywhere. It was hundreds to one. What did he think? He thought just like David, just like Jonathan. What did they say? Whether it be by many or by few, the Lord can deliver. And it doesn't matter. Actually, we're going to see here it's better when it's by few. And see, that's... The key passage, the key part of this whole chapter is here at the end of verse 10. Eliezer brought about a great victory. The Israelites brought about a great victory. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to plunder. Think of that thing. It's the Lord. It's the Lord who brings about the great victory. He's the one who gets the glory. What does he need? One man. One woman who will trust him just five minutes longer than everybody else. Let's face it, as soon as the war starts, you're not going anywhere at that point. You're in, it in, the, in the thick of it, but that's okay. Why? Because you've got God on your side. The Lord is with you. And he's going to bring about a great victory that day. But let me ask you, as you think about it, this is Eliezer. He's one of the mighty men. You think he just showed up that morning and said, oh, what's that? That's a sword. Okay, I'm going to come to work. What's this do? Let's try this out today. He probably didn't. He was a mighty man, a mighty man. He was one of David's army. He probably practiced for hours, days, weeks, months, maybe years. The shield and the sword. He knew how to battle. You see the application there? You want to be a mighty man or woman for God? Do you know how to battle with the sword? I love this guy. He fought so hard, he couldn't let go when he was done. I mean, it just wasn't going to, it wasn't going to come out of his hand. You couldn't pry it out of his hand. Why? He, probably because he cramped up, Right? Why did he cramp up? Because with each blow, he was not giving up that sword. You have an application for that today? I think we do, don't we? Battles go on, don't they? Battles happen. Thoughts come across our hearts and our minds, and we say, it's, and, and, and doubts come in. It's too difficult to follow Christ. 
and you take out the word of God and you say, no, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have delivered to him against that day. I'm not giving up the sword. I'm not giving it up. Think of false religions out there who try to rock you, who try to get in and disturb you. You take out the word of God and you battle. Now I want to be careful. You don't, you don't put my sword and shield down. You don't take the word of God out and you don't beat him with it. Okay, right? And you actually, you don't beat him with it physically and you don't beat him with it verbally. You're not verbally abusive, right? But you just use it. You don't have to get bent out of shape. You don't have to worry about defending the word of God. Like you don't have to defend a lion. Just let him out of the cage. Let him go at it. Get out the word of God and just present it. And you present it over and over again. You don't give up. Bring in every high and lofty thought in the captivity of Christ. By the time you're done, people say, what's that thing hanging off you? I just can't seem to let go. That's the word of God. Do you know the word of God well enough to do battle with the enemy? Are you spending time with Jesus in his word? Letting him speak to you in a real way, not going through the motions. Where he gets in and he speaks to you. And oftentimes it hurts. It is a sword. It pierces. It cuts in a life-changing way. And then when you're done, you say, thank you, Lord. I could see I needed a little surgery today. Thank you for cutting through. Okay, let's look at our next hero here. Shammah. Verse 11. And after him was Shammah, the son of Aji, the Herite. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. Now I have to confess, and maybe you're asking this too, what does this have to do with lentils? I mean, we got swords, you know, we got spears and lion-like men. What's it got to do with a field of lentils? You know? And I don't, I'll be honest, maybe there's someone better at Bible study and research than I am, but uh, the thing I thought of when I thought of lentils is that, you know, it doesn't matter where it's at. I, I assume lentils, I mean, if, if you know what lentils are, you know, I've seen lentil soup, I think I've had lentil soup, you know? Your field of lentils, I'm thinking it's going to be a mess, right? You know, open battlefields where you want to have a war. You know, you got your sword and you got your shield and you're there, you're there in the field of, of, of lentils, you, you're going to come out looking like probably like pea soup or something, right? And so as I thought of this, this shaman, I thought of this verse of what he did and how he stood his ground. And where he stood his ground, he stood his ground by where he was at. You want to be a mighty man, mighty woman for God, stand where you're at. It might be a field of lentils. But you know what? That's all right. It could be a mess. Maybe you're at home. Maybe you have wayward children. And you've got to stand your ground. They want to go one way, and you're not going to go with them. Okay? You're going to stand your ground. You love your children enough for them to see you will not condone sin you're going to represent the lord you're going to stand your ground you will love them but not accept their sin graciously and firmly bringing peace being at peace with the lord in your home so that if not today one day those kids will remember you know my mom and dad i couldn't shake them I didn't want them to follow the Lord, but they still did. They were real because they stood their ground. Maybe it's at work, in the workplace, the work with all its off-color jokes and, 
and really just the bent desire to keep the reality of spiritual things out. There seems to be nothing so odd to the ears of workmates than to talk about the Lord. Yet so often we see the Lord's hand in every day at work in his gracious dealings with us. You know what? You might not have as many lunchmates at the company functions. Maybe not as many people will come up and talk to you. But you know what? When that marriage starts falling apart and they can't handle their kids or they're diagnosed with cancer, they know to call. They remember who was real with them, who stood their ground. Dear believer, stand your ground, wherever it, wherever it may be. Paul said to Timothy, be ready in season and out of season, in the lentil field or out of the lentil field. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering. Be patient with folks. The Lord's not done yet. It says in 1 Peter 3, 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. This is eternity. These are souls. You don't have anything greater value in your life. All right. Thank you, Shama, for your example. Let's go on to verses 13 through 17. I love these guys. These guys, I won't read again because it's too long, but these guys to me are the special forces. These are, these are the Lord's Marine Recon here. I think I'm going call to them, call them the uh, Ananites because they're anonymous. These guys seem reckless, don't they? All right, I'll go ahead and read it real quick. I just love reading this. Hold on a second. Then three of the thirty chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And, and the troop of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Okay, you see that? So here in the cave, Dave's in, a, Dave's in the cave, and they're calling it a stronghold. And the Philistines are in the valley. Now Bethlehem is over there too. So you have Bethlehem, and it's got a wall. Because what do you have there? You also have a gate, right? And you have the Philistines in front. Of Bethlehem. <laughs> this is a suicide. I love this. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. You know, I can just kind of picture him saying that, can't you? They're battling, they're battling back and forth. There's a break in the action. He's up there in the cave. They're down, you know, Bethlehem's got the well. How many times did he come in from watching the sheep? You know, comes in the gate, ah, get something out of that well, right inside the gate. Ah, beautiful. That's, man, that's refreshing. That tastes good. How many times had he done that growing up as a kid? You see? It was right here in his heart. And he was just saying the natural outpouring of his heart. Ah, oh, I'd love a drink from that well. You know, to the loyal... To the faithful, really, to the loving. Not much more is needed. I can, I can look at some of the, the marriages here and some of the spouses, and that's what, that's what we like, don't we? We just like to have just, just a barely a whisper of a desire. And that loved one says, oh, you, you said something about this? Not really, but thanks. It was on David's heart. You see, he just stood there, said what was on his heart. You know what these guys didn't do? They didn't ask permission. They seem reckless, don't they? They seem like they just went out and did this. But you know what? All they needed to know was what their captain wanted, what was in his heart. And you know what? That was good enough for them. They were going to go do it. The enemy had his hometown and that well, and they knew what he wanted. And full of commitment. 
these men, they risked their lives, didn't they? I mean, imagine that. They're battling through. And you got three of them. Smart, right? Because as you approach that camp, you gotta, you, this is going to be a little mini war, right? You have three of you, but then you're getting to the well, which is through the camp. So now you've got to have at least one guy guarding your back while two go forward. Then you get to the well, and then someone's got to draw out the water while you've got the two of you are battling everybody else back. Then as soon as you get that water, that water's like gold, huh? That water's like gold. What is it? Maybe, maybe it was a skin of water or a bucket. Maybe worse, a cup. But you don't care. It's like gold. You're going to get that water back to David. And you're trusting those two to cover your back while you're getting that water. These men risk their lives. They're bringing it back to David. David takes one look at that and says, Oh, whoa. I know I'm not worthy of this. This is, this is the blood. This is the lives of these men. And someone say, what, what a waste. He pours it out on the ground. No, he pours it out to the Lord. The only one worthy of that kind of commitment, that kind of effort, the only one worthy. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, isn't that where we're at this morning? It's not David we're following. It's the Lord Jesus. And he is worth that type of commitment, isn't he? Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's let's talk about this if he's worthy of that kind of commitment and david could just say what was on his heart what did jesus say is on his heart we don't have to guess we don't have to wonder he's already told us matter of fact he told us repeatedly four or five times for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son go out into all the world preach the gospel where is the lord's heart today it's for the world it's for souls of men and women around the world the millions excuse me maybe billions of people who've never even heard the name of jesus and who cannot be saved until they do that's where jesus heart is at his heart beats how can what do you tell <laughs> i think i've said this before from the pulpit when i'm leaving my children i always give them the final instructions the most important obey this and do that and take care of this before you go to bed and don't forget to brush your teeth and make sure you obey like i'm here you tell them all the important things at the end jesus is leaving he's going to heaven what does he say go out in all the world preach the gospel that's what's on his heart his heart is for their salvation. Men from every tribe, kindred, nation, and tongue being saved. Who does he need? He needs mighty men and women. Special forces? Special Christians? No. He doesn't need special Christians. He needs ordinary Christians, ordinary believers who are willing to do a special job. listening to the heartbeat of jesus and saying i'll go i want to read a story that some of us heard at the prayer meeting a couple weeks back this is about someone who responded who was listening to the heartbeat of the lord this is spoken by a, a leader in india he says one of the first places that i went to serve god when i was younger was a place called Bundi." you know this story please be patient with me for those and for those who haven't heard it bundi in northwest of india hard difficult hindus were there seven brothers and myself with bible tracts we went to this place and we were beaten without mercy one brother had blood oozing down his head so they had to leave that place some years went by and a younger brother a 19 year old finished bible study he had finished his bible studies and said to the leaders jesus wants me to go to bundi they said you you are a little fellow and you're only 19 years old 
Bunny is a dangerous place. You shouldn't go. He said, but I prayed the whole year. And I know Jesus wants me to go to Bundy. The senior brother, the leadership said, son, are you sure he wants you to go to Bundy? The boy said, yes. So the leader said, then please go. He went to Bundy and rented a place for $5 a month. After a few days in the middle of the night, someone came and busted the door open. And he found himself surrounded by seven men. One tall man with a turban on his head pulled the boy up and said, you young fellow, leave this place. And if you stay, we will tear you apart like we do a chicken. We don't want your God. We have plenty of gods and goddesses. Tonight we will not kill you, but tomorrow you leave this place. He got scared. Wouldn't you? The next morning, he took the first bus back to town and ran back to the mission station. And he told the leaders, trembling in fear, what had happened. These men came and said they would kill me. It's easy to believe because there actually had been a martyr in Bundy years before. So they said, what are you going to do? He said, I don't know what to do. They're going to kill me. And again, the senior brother said, are you sure Jesus called you to Bundy? He said, I, I know he told me to go to Bundy. It's the only burden I have. The older brother said, son, you go back to Bundy. Most probably they will come back to you again. And yes, you might be killed. But remember, heaven is a much better place than Bundy. You wait there for us and we'll come later. The young brother knelt and kneeled down. They laid their hands on him and prayed for him. And they sent him away. He left in tears thinking he would never see them again. He reached Bundy. Sure enough, after a few days, the same men came back and said, why are you now going to make us murderers? Didn't we tell you not to come here? And he listened to all their speeches calmly. And then he said, you know what? The sooner you do your job, the better it is for me. Heaven is a much better place than Boondi anyway. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do with someone who doesn't mind dying? He faced persecution and problems. And some years later, this leader who wrote this was invited to speak at a small, uh, a dedication for a small church there in Bundy. They worshiped God for hours. And this leader was able to share the word of God. And afterward, this young man came, this 19-year-old back then was 19, came to the leader and introduced a friend. This was the man who years earlier was going to tear him apart like a chicken. Nineteen years old. Prayed for a year for God to lead him. <laughs> Imagine praying for a year for God to leave you and all you get is boondie. <laughs> Easier to say it now, but on that side of boondie, not so easy. He accepted Jesus' answer anyway of Bundy. Let me ask you this morning, are there only mighty men and women in India? I don't think so. What about here? What about here? I know, I know there's people in this assembly who are considering giving their lives to the Lord for this great work of reaching the lost. Pray for Stacy and I. She's agreed to pray with me about going out to the mission field. I know there's plenty of reasons not to. Plenty of reasons. I've enjoyed those reasons for years. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Pray for us. 
We pray for others who are considering giving their lives to the Lord for the mission field. Those of you who are considering it, as elders, we wait for you. We wait for you to be listening to the heart of Jesus, to know when he's speaking. And don't worry. When he speaks to you, he'll speak to us too. We'll all be on the same page. We'll confirm and be right behind you. Supporting you, maybe tearfully, but looking through how Jesus is going to get a great victory that day through you. And like the three men, we'll expect to see the Lord give you good co-workers, good fellow soldiers who will have your back. It's been 20 years, maybe more, about 20 years since this assembly has sent out missionaries. Has the heart of the Lord changed for the world? Are we listening? Are we listening? But some would say, I can't go. What about my children and all their problems? What about my grandchildren? I can't leave them behind. I can't, I can't not see them. I can't go. I can't learn a language and a culture. I took a test. I failed. I can't learn those things. I'm too old. I'm too inept. I'm too whatever. I can't go and live there. I can't deal with the heat and the stink and the sanitary conditions, all the mounds of multitude of people. I can't do it. Perfect. Because when you can't do it, who gets the victory? If you're sitting here this morning saying you can't do it, then you're exactly the type of person Jesus wants to use. Because he gets the glory. It all goes to him. And the Lord brings about a great victory through your life. I'm going to look at these last two guys, uh, Abishai and Benaiah, verses 18 through 23. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Verse 20, Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He had also gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with his staff, wrested the spear out of, his, out, out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. I love these two guys. They show whether it's incredible numbers. I, mean, I can't even imagine 300 to 1. I was stuck back on 800 to 1. 300 to 1? I can't even imagine that. And what, is it, what does it mean these guys look like lions? All right? Lion-like men from Moab. The only thing I can start to imagine is just like, you know, wrestler, football player combined with a bunch of hair all over the place or something. You know, for a mane and just incredibly aggressive. I mean, he's the type of person you go up to and you just go, wow. Right? These are Goliath type of people. Egyptian, a spectacular man. What does that mean? These, these, are, these are mighty men. What I like about these guys is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a lot, and it doesn't matter how intimidating they are. They said, okay, let's go. It's real simple. You're on the wrong side. And the Lord wants to accomplish something. They knew the heart of their leader, and they knew what he wanted to accomplish. The Lord can still get the victory. I'm going to get real practical 
at this point because I, I'm just going to share with you what the Lord's doing in my life I'm along those lines. I share this chapter, and I wanted to share from this chapter because I find it real inspirational because um, I need it. I need to be challenged like this. I need to, to be able to be available to Jesus for him to get that great victory that day, today. So do you think of these two men, Abishai and Benaiah, let me ask you, how do you think they prepared? You think they're up late the night before and, you know, feasting and, you know, pounding down a pint of Ben and Jerry's at 11.30 at night and, you know, trying to get up early, go out to battle? I do you, I do you laugh that one, John. My nutritionist expert over there. Do you think they spent most of their waking hours back on the farm worrying about their business, worrying about their jobs? Could they have just stayed in their house and fought the battles of David? No, these men had to be focused. They had to buffet and beat their bodies into submission or their bodies would fail on them. I think about a, a, a quote I picked up from someone about food. There's two ways you can eat, or at least two ways that he thought of. You can eat for pleasure, you can eat for purpose. An athlete eats for purpose. He has an intent of what he's doing when he eats. Let me broaden that that aspect. Think of your life. Is your life spent for pleasure or for purpose? Do you work your job? Do you live in your house? you live where you live? Do you spend your money? Do you spend your time? Is it with purpose or just pleasure? See, I think of myself having to answer those questions. And I think of these mighty men and the things they accomplished for Christ. You know, I see the two in opposite ends. Either I'm living for pleasure, which is myself, or I'm living for purpose, which is for Christ. And these aren't ours, are they? They're not our jobs. They're not our houses. They're certainly not our money, and it certainly isn't our time. Who do they belong to? They belong to Jesus, don't they? The Lord's been speaking to me about being careless. I can, I can be super spiritual and say, you know, I'm just too busy to, to watch what I eat, you know, and, and uh, you know, it doesn't really matter to the Lord anyway, right? Super spiritual, probably pseudo-spiritual would be a better, better word. The Lord does care. Now, I don't mean to be legal, sound legalistic or, or, you know, don't eat this food and eat that food. That's not the point. The point is, do you have purpose? And is it the Lord's purpose? Paul says this, Do you know, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way, run with such a purpose that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown. But we, an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus, I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. Temperate, he says, and all things. Now, you can see with the way I'm direction I was going, I'm not going to be running, I'm not going to be winning any races like this. So I need to be temperate about food. There's meaning here that you don't have that problem. But there's a temperate that you do need to have. Maybe it's a temperate about work. Every extra hour, every other hour, even the extra hours are spent on what? 
more work. And for me, that means just making sure Fido and Fifi gets a good blood test. What's that compared to eternity? Not purpose. That's, that's focused on me. What do you need to be tempered at? Maybe it's a focus, excuse the expression, a focus on the family. Overly focused on what you have or what you don't have. It's not temperate. It's not from Jesus. When the temperance we're talking about brings humility. Some of the most humble people I've seen, they just put things where they're supposed to be. Where are they supposed to be? Wherever Jesus says they're supposed to be. Work? No, that's here and over there. Food? Here and over there. Family? Right where it's supposed to be. Not bigger. Not less. I'll tell you, when I look around here, I see some of the greatest people in the world. And I mean that sincerely. No other people I'd rather be with. And when I think of what we've been, the inheritance we have in this assembly, through Bill McDonald, directly and indirectly, through Gene Gibson and others, I go, wow. What we have in this assembly. And I think, what's keeping us from being mighty men and women of Christ. So I challenge you saints today, ask yourself today, what's keeping us? Is there anything? You know, just, just trust the Lord that five minutes longer. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to thank you. We thank you for these men who loved you, Lord. They loyally followed your man, and his slightest desire uh, was their greatest need. And yet, Lord Jesus, we look to you and we see you, the one who came for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Lord, I think of the apostle John who put his head against your breast and listened to the heartbeat of Jesus, the heartbeat of God. And Lord, we want to be like that today. We want to follow you. Lord, you have us in the midst of the fields of the lentils where we're at. Show us what you'd have us to do. Help us to stand our ground, whether it be from those in our own household or those who are outside, wherever it might come from, Lord Jesus, help us to look to you. Help us to become equipped with our swords to know the word of God and to be able to use it. And Lord, we do pray that you would raise up from this assembly, that we might go out into all the world. Lord, you have given us so much. And Lord, you still say, to whom much is given, much is required. Lord, help us so that we might receive from you in that day what we look for, not a perishable crown, but that well done, now good and faithful servant, Enter into the joy of your Lord. Help us, we ask, Lord Jesus, as we say heartily afresh, Lord, you are worth it and so much more. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen.